pastor's message this morning is, has a very exciting title, uh, How Things Really Are. And the text is in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. How things really are. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and the love unto all the saints, ceased not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power, and might, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and has put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come in the name of Christ, our risen Lord, this morning, and in accordance with the Apostle Paul's prayer, I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be with us, that he would enlighten our hearts to understand the way things really are. Father, we are so often beset because we don't have a vision of what's true, and what is true is that the power that you worked in Raising Christ from the dead is at work in us. I pray that we'd be encouraged then because of Christ, be encouraged by your grace and your power, and be encouraged by the reign of Christ, who reigns over all things in this age and in the age to come. We pray this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the things I've been preaching on seems to be often that I say this is that we have a hard time getting around the truth. We have a hard time because of our limitations to see what's really going on. And the last two years have been a good indication of that for us all. Who's telling the truth? Is the CDC telling the truth? Is the spokesperson for the health of the entire nation telling the truth? How about the world, the WHO, who's telling the truth there? Uh, a lot of people have been silenced in this past couple years who thought they were telling the truth. And we have a hard time getting around the truth because we can't see above all of the things. We can't see around. We can't see into the closed door meetings where they decide policies and the great rulers of this world dictate who gets to have what. We were talking yesterday about the, the solar companies who are just making money left and right nowadays because you have to buy their solar systems if you build a new house. And it's ironic because every time it rains a lot, well, it's cloudy then. And that tends to be when it gets cold, when you need more hot water, 
and that's when you have to turn on the electricity that charges your heater. And then when it's hot outside and the sun is out, you don't need the solar electricity, but that's when you have your solar electricity working for you, and so you don't need the hot water. It's, it's a real great game. And some policymaker has decided that everybody has to pay the $6,000 or whatever to get your solar, and I'm not against solar, but I'm just telling you, we don't know how the truth works so often. We don't know what's real. You read a newspaper, and I'll tell you this this morning, you don't read the truth all the time when you pick that thing up. The, the great God of this age, science, has been shown to be full of holes, hasn't it? Follow the science, we've been taught. Science is a work in progress. A good scientist will tell you that. But I want to tell you this morning that there is truth and that we need to see it. We need to see the things the way they truly are. That's the burden of the Apostle Paul. In our text this morning, he offers a prayer. It's a perpetual prayer. In fact, it's an inscripturated prayer, which I think is profound. That means it's an ongoing prayer. And it's, on, it's an ongoing prayer for God's people. Chapter 1, verse 1 of Ephesians, this letter is written to the saints. The saints at Ephesus, but it's to us. The saints who are in Christ Jesus. Those who are, have been set apart in this world is who this prayer is for. It's a prayer of supplication. He's asking God for what we need. What do you need this morning? By the word of God and the authority that is vested in me to preach it, this is what you need this morning. You need this. First we see this is a persistent prayer. Verse 15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. It's profound that he says these things together. Your faith and your love that comports with that faith it demonstrates that faith has substance. I do not cease to give thanks to you, for you, rather, remembering you in my prayers. As I said, this is to the saints who are at Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. This is to you this morning. Are you one that has received the grace of God and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ by faith? If so, you are set apart. You are beloved by God. In a particular way, God has shown his love abroad on you. Texts like these should especially be visited by us, those who belong to God, on a regular basis. How often do we need the encouragement of the prayer of the saints? Who doesn't feel encouraged when somebody says, I'm praying for you? Well, here we have Paul, the inspired apostle, perpetually praying for you. You need prayer? Come to this text. You'll hear it. You'll hear a prayer, and then you'll also see, you'll have your eyes enlightened to what you need. So often, we need prayer for this thing or that thing. And those things aren't little, and they're not unimportant to God. But sometimes, we need prayer for the things that we are in essential need of. This is one of those prayers. And he says here, I do not cease to give thanks for you. 
It's a prayer of thanksgiving then too, isn't it? We should be grateful for every sister and every brother in the Lord, even while we pray for what is needed by them. Remembering you in my prayers. So this is a perpetual prayer, supplication of thanksgiving. It's one that we ought to come to regularly. Secondly, it's a Trinitarian prayer. Verse 17. That is, as it brings God, one God, before us in three persons. And this is what is most essential to us, is God himself. It brings us at his feet and, and brings our supplications, our need, and our thanks before him. We are dependent upon God. What do we need most essentially in life? Water, food, electricity, solar power, all and on and on and on it goes. What we need most of all is God, our creator. Prayer brings us always back to the one we need most, and that's God. And it's my conviction that he gets to the core of what's essential for every believer, even when he addresses this prayer to God the Father. How does Jesus teach us to pray? Our Father who is in heaven. Children, you're here this morning, and, and so often I hear children, and, and I don't scold them when I hear this. They'll pray, Jesus, I want you to know this morning, Jesus prayed to the Father. Jesus taught us to pray, our Father who is in heaven. The Apostle Paul begins this prayer by saying, Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You have a Father in heaven. Pray to your Father in heaven. Address him by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will hear your prayer. And so we see God the Father addressed here, but oftentimes we see those who deny the deity of Christ using this verse as a denial of his deity. The Father, God, Father, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says. The God of Jesus Christ, they point out. See, he's the God of Jesus Christ. He certainly is the God of our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is very clear about that. And Jesus is Lord. What does that mean? I will tell you this, is that Paul would be stoned by the Jews for saying this prayer. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Shema, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now when Jesus recites that prayer, he says the Lord, Kyrios, is one. And that Kyrios, that Greek word, is the same Greek word here used in this text to say the Father of our Lord, Kyrios, Jesus Christ. You know, there's only one Lord. <laughs> there is only one Lord, and the New Testament is clear that Jesus is Lord. This is a direct reference to the Lordship, the deity of Christ, even as it relates to Christ as the second person of the Trinity, but even more so as our mediator, the one who subjects himself to the Father. Jesus is Lord. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 5, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. 
And that's in another Trinitarian sequence. Chapter 4, verse 4 is the Father. Chapter 4, verse 5 is the Son, one Lord. Chapter 4, verse 6 is the Holy Spirit. Just like we see here in this recital. We come to God as who he reveals himself to be. That's how we pray to God. And here Paul, in his first request, includes the third person of the Trinity. And here's his first request for us. May give you the spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, his first request has this spirit here. And most translations, I believe, do not capitalize spirit. It's not capitalized in many translations. However, I would argue that the ESV is right in capitalizing spirit here. And, and the reason why I say that is because the description follows the word spirit, the spirit of wisdom, of revelation, and the knowledge of him. And when we see those things that follow, we see a pattern that unfolds in the pages of scripture that refer not to a spirit entity or a spirit in a sense of a, uh, of a, uh, a spiritual blessing, but a person. This is the same spirit that gave Joseph and Daniel understanding of dreams and visions. Genesis 41, 38 and 39. Can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, that's a spirit of revelation, a spirit of knowledge, a spirit of wisdom. There is none so discerning as wise as you are, because why? Because God, the Holy Spirit, revealed to you these things. Isaiah 11:2. this speaks about the spirit who remained upon Christ in his ministry. And the spirit of the Lord, that's the Holy Spirit, shall rest on him. Here's how he's described. The spirit, capitalized, of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Jesus promised that this spirit, whom he and the Father would send, would teach the apostles about him. The Holy Spirit is the teacher. In fact, without the Holy Spirit, we can know no spiritual truth. There is no spiritual knowledge that comes to natural man apart from the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2. 10 through 12. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person? The Spirit of God knows that person, that the, the thoughts of God, which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of this world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. So Paul is praying not only that we'd have the Holy Spirit, we have the Holy Spirit, but that Spirit of God who knows the mind of God, who knows the things of God, would enlighten our hearts. And the Greek word there means to further illuminate us. And so this is something that, like I said, we can come back to. You know, we don't have all knowledge, do we? And sometimes we forget. It's one of the patterns of the human condition that we forget. That's why we come here every week. God's people who are saved by grace, we come every week as he is ordained that we do to sit at his feet to hear the word, to be under it, to be taught by the Spirit. And that's how the Spirit 
works is through the word. What do you need to know from God the Spirit this morning? Lottery numbers? Is that what you need? Stock market? What's going up? What's going? It looks all going down right now. I don't want to discourage you. Inflation, how long that's going to go up? You need to know that. Should you buy an electric vehicle? You get the rebate, right? Political winners and losers. Who wants to vote for a loser? Right over here in Hawaii. Seems like that's what we do often. The end of the war in Ukraine. Russia, when's that coming? How's that going to come? I want that to come. When's that? Or the end of COVID. Is that done, you think? There's another strain out there, the B-A2.2, if you all didn't know, so you can sleep tonight. Now you know that. Is that what we need to know? That's not what Paul asks. And maybe it's something serious. You know, maybe it's my, my son has cancer. Maybe our, our marriage is this close to breaking down. Maybe it's, I'm struggling with faith. What is it? What do you need? Paul's praying this prayer about how things are that we need to know. And here it is, verses 18 through 23, a prayer of supplication and thanks to see things, that we see things the way they are. If you are taking notes, you can put the letter A here, a certain hope. And we'll come back to these things a little later. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Here's a request. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he called you. Now that called you is not just the general calling of the gospel. That's not just what we say when we go out from these doors and we tell our neighbors and our loved ones and our family members that Jesus, the Son of God, came. He humbled himself and became man and he lived a perfect life that you couldn't live, that you didn't live. And he went to the cross representing sinners before God. And he was crucified there. And he bore the wrath, the curse that our sin deserved on that cross. And he paid for sinners' sin. He paid the ransom. And he was buried and he rose three days and he ascended into heaven on, and, and is at the right hand of the Father. And he can forgive your sins because of what Jesus has done for you if you trust in him. That's not what the apostle means by called here. That's true. When we tell that to those unbelievers, all that is true, and that's the call we give them. But he's talking about an effectual, what's called an effectual calling. You are established in the grace of God with this calling. God, by his power, has brought you to himself. You are a saint. You are a believer. And you have hope. And he's praying that you may know it. B, and we'll come back to it. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Which, out, Without going into too much detail, Paul says later that this inheritance has to do with belonging to the kingdom of God. Chapter 5, verse 5. Romans eight seventeen. The inheritance that he speaks of here actually is rightfully Jesus's. 
But because we are adopted children, we share with that inheritance. So that we would know it. That's what we have in store for us. And see, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? This power is not measurable because it is not hindered by time. He says in chapter 2, verse 7, so that in the coming ages, that's indefinite, that's eternity, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Peter paints this very same picture in the doxology of his first epistle. What Paul is praying for, he glorifies God for. 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. That is, that immeasurable greatness of his power that Paul prayed for. To a living hope, a hope which he has called you. It's living, abiding through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And Paul prayed that we'd know of the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. But notice how Paul identifies the grounds of our hope and God's immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, same way Peter does. In the middle of what Peter said, he said, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, number four, the basis of every blessing. Verse 20 through 23. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now, Paul began this sentence, this prayer, back in verse 15. It's, it's continued. It's, the sentence hasn't ended until verse 21. And here's what he's asked for. The Holy Spirit's revelation to us for the following truths. That we know the hope of our calling. That we know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. His immeasurable power at work in us. And that power is the same power which God the Father displayed when he raised Jesus from the dead. These are things that Paul prays for us to know. And they are all grounded in the resurrection and the reign of Christ. We have a living hope because he lives. We share in the living inheritance of a living Christ. And the same immeasurable power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us. And do you know this? I mean, think about what we're saying here. Those who are downcast, who are facing hardship in this world as believers, these, in this day, were losing homes, businesses, relationships, and maybe you've lost it too when you became a Christian. Maybe you're still losing those earthly things. Maybe the cross that you're taking up daily is causing you to lose earthly comforts. What is your hope? It's not in the stock market? Is it in the freedom of speech? 
that we're losing? I mean, what, where is the grounds of the certainty which we hang our hat on every day and say, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him until that day. Where's that hope? Where's it grounded? It's grounded in the resurrection of Christ. Christ has been raised. Our labors are not in vain in the Lord, therefore. This life is not lived in vain because Christ is raised. What if you lose everything in this world? People do that. I know somebody the other day who had a bill for hundreds of thousands of dollars and didn't expect it. What do you do if that comes to you? You give, you, you give up hope? We don't have anything in this world. What are we hoping? I hope you've listened to Jesus and are storing up treasures in heaven. The things of this world are passing away. You see, what we really need is to see things the way they really are. And the way that things cannot be shaken. Can't be moved out of order. This life is full of change. And it can happen in a blink of an eye. Nobody expects to ha it to happen to us. Anybody expect the last two years? Where was our hope? We have a future inheritance. And what about this immeasurable power at work in us? Do you, do you believe, do you see that power at work in you? Or do you wake up, Jim, you know this, in pain and say, I don't feel very much power at all. I think the apostle is praying for something that is more true than our feelings of infirmities every day. Well, how do you say that? I'm not saying that your, your weakness and your pain is not true. But it's not lasting. It's not lasting. This life is a vapor. And it doesn't feel good when you're sick and it doesn't feel good when you're off and it doesn't feel good when people don't like you and it doesn't feel good when you've been reviled and persecuted if we've been any of us ever have I don't know there's all sorts of things that we are being taught even in churches that when those things are lost how do we go on living let me say this if the Lord doesn't return, all of us are going to lose all of these physical things. And this is what's going to remain. This immeasurable power that is at work in us. If only there was an analogy to this somewhere, right? Where can we see this? Except one of our favorite portions of Scripture is chapter 2 of Ephesians, isn't it? What do we read in chapter 2 of Ephesians? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That's not power. That's inability, spiritually speaking. 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And you walked in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is not power. That's deadness. And people, oh, well, deadness means separation from God. Without God, you can do nothing, the scriptures say. It doesn't mean inability, people say. They want to they hold on to our will and our power and our ability as human beings to somehow commend ourselves before God. We have nothing to commend ourselves before God, spiritually speaking. We are dead as Jesus was dead in the tomb. We were as dead, spiritually speaking. But that same power that raised Christ from the dead, chapter 2, verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. If only there was analogy to this hope, this inheritance, this power, and has seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's not... That's not some future prospect. Colossians says you are seated with him now there. By the way, the rest of chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, says that Jesus reigns now in this age. God raised him from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of God on high where he rested from his redemptive labors, and he is enthroned, reigning as king now. You go to Revelation chapter 1. Oh, I don't know. You go there. Just go there. Let's go there. I don't have any notes. Preach through. Look at this vision that John has. He has a vision here, and we know that he's receiving a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. This is Jesus. This is the glorified Lord clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. He's not clothed in humility anymore. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, what would you do? I fell at his feet as though dead. And here's that immeasurable power of the grace of God. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and hell. He is Lord. 
He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords now, and the Apostle wants us to know it. He wants us to know it. So often we look around us and we just, too much evil, too much power. What could we possibly do? And the apostle is saying, you need hope. You need to hope in the Lord. You need to remember your inheritance. You, re- you need to know, you need to know that immeasurable power that is at work in you that brought you from life to death because that is the power of God that brought Jesus from life to death. And it rests upon him. And he reigns. I want to read the rest. I meant to read the rest of chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. And seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. That includes Satan, demons, earthly kings, earthly potentates, all of that. And above every name that is named. And and this is what I want us to see, because oftentimes we think, well, the kingdom is something that will come later. It'll come when he comes back. But Paul says, no, this is where he reigns now, in this age, and in the age to come. The age to come, that's eternity. But he rules in this way now. And he put all things under his feet. Psalm 110. Everything is in subjection under him. Although, here's the, here's the not yet part. We don't see it like that. Not everybody willingly bows his, their knees to Christ. But we sure do see that Satan is having a hard time prevailing against the church. 2,000 years of history. Now, we look at the West and we say, woe is us. And that's true. There's, as we look at the West culture, not as God's people, But as the culture around us, we say, look at the evil. Meanwhile, in China, the church is growing rapidly. Meanwhile, in Asia, the church is growing at a rate that it's never been growing before. In Middle East, the church is growing. And and so I just want to say to you, don't be like those who determine what's going to happen or what really is by what we read in the newspaper. Yes, we come to God's word and we're informed by what God says about the future, but this is about how things really are as well. Christ is reigning. Everything is under his feet. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, Colossians 2.13, or 2.15 says. That's spiritual antagonists against us. He put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. And who? In Christ. When he died on the cross and when he rose from the dead, he disarmed evil. Sometimes I think we just, we don't even live with that faith that the scriptures call us to. We think somehow Satan is more powerful than God, more powerful than Christ, that he still has the sway of our hearts, let alone the world. If you are in Christ, Satan does not have dominion over you. That's part of that immeasurable power at work in you, is to keep you until the day of redemption. He's put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. When we read that term, the head over all things, I hope you don't think of just a domineering tyrant. 
Do you see what happened when John went before Jesus? And he sees him in his glory and splendor, and he bows down to him in fear and trembling. What does Jesus say? Fear not. Our head loves the body. He gave his life for the body. He rose again for the body. He is Lord, but he is benevolent. He is loving towards us. He is more faithful than the most faithful husband has ever been to love his spouse, to his church. That is what it means when we read that he is the head. Christ is these things now. We are his body. And the fullness of him who fills all in all is us because we are in him. There is something that I want you to think about. If all authority is given to Christ, if he reigns now in this age, and he's our head and we are his body, we are united to him, what does that mean about the church? Does it mean that the church should go around thinking, woe is us, look at all these laws that are being passed against us? This is the church he's writing to. You think it's hard now? Try being a first century Christian. And he's telling them, you have hope. You have a future inheritance that cannot be taken away. And you have power at work in you. The same power that raised Christ from the dead. And he is alive. And he's reigning. And you belong to him. You are union with him. So here we are, church, knowing this. And the purpose of this is not just to make us go home today and rest our head on our pillow and take a nap. You can do that, and I'm trying to do that myself. But the purpose of this is so that we'll go through the rest of the epistle, we'll continue to see what God has done for us, and we will live lives that comport with Christ's reign. Lives of obedience in the face of a world that hates us for it. Lives of faithfulness, of devotion, of love to God and love for one another. You see, this sets us ablaze in the world to be courageous in the face of those who don't want to hear it. And if they put us to death, if they take us and throw us in the fire, if they take away our pension, if they take away our jobs, we don't lose hope, we don't lose our inheritance, and we don't lack power because Christ is raised and that power is still in us. Do you believe that? If you don't believe that, if you don't believe this, if you're not in Christ, I want to invite you to him, to believe on his name. You can't stand against him. The Bible says in Acts chapter 17, when Paul is preaching to the intellectuals, this is not what intellectual conversations look now, nowadays with the church. He says, God has appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by the one whom he has raised from the dead. The man whom he has appointed. This is the day of salvation. This is the day of mercy. God holds out his hands and says, Come. Come without buying anything. You don't come with money. You don't come offering me anything. You receive the Lord by faith.
and he will accept you in the beloved when you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's go out of here, not with drooping heads, not with drooping ears, reverence and joy. And let us be courageous. Let us be faithful. Let us live a life that is loving towards one another and towards our Father in heaven who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus.